millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week's guest has spent a good amount of time thinking out possible endgames for Donald Trump. And I know there's a lot of speculation as to, you know, how will Trump leave office? You know, will he serve out a full term or will he be forced to resign in shame? Or will he serve out two full terms or, or a three or four at the rate we're going? Um, or will he be arrested and sent to federal prison for treason? Or, or will he die of a massive coronary on a golden toilet? Or, or will he be assassinated by a group of caring nuns? Or, or will he succumb to the polonium lace tea? Or will he be ripped apart by four horses going in different directions in the town square as long as we're going to keep going back to medieval days? Or will he be shot uh, by a Nazi who travels through time to shoot Trump going, you're making us look bad? Or, um, or will that time-traveling Nazi be thwarted by a time-traveling Richard Nixon who travels through time just past the Nazi so he can land there so when the Nazi shows up, he can shoot the Nazi going, please, please, for my sake, let him live. You know, or... Or... Will he die of third-degree burns and shrapnel when the polygraph machine explodes? Or will he die of a perforated colon when Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Piers Morgan and Devin Nunez and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and Paul Rand and all the Fox and Pals all try to mount him simultaneously? We don't know. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I am so excited to have David Cross as my guest on today's show. From Mr. Show to Arrested Development to stand-up bits like the one you just heard, few people have made me laugh as consistently as David has over the past 25 years. And there really is no one else I'd rather talk to at this bizarre political moment in America when Donald Trump has been fired by the American people, but doesn't seem to fully realize it yet. David and I got into all of that and looked back on his majorly influential comedy career. We also talked about his reluctant starring role in the new season of The Assembly Podcast, which closely follows his process putting together a new hour of stand-up. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed taping it. Here's me with David Cross. So we're, we're talking uh, about a week and a half after the election and just about a week after, a little less than a week after they, they called it for Biden. So I just wanted to also take your temperature on that. How are you feeling about uh, after this election? Uh, you know, about, I'd say 96.8, 97.2. Okay, good. That's on the low side, but but good. Yeah. Well, I kind of got some shit from my my wife and her friends who had come over. We were going to have a play date with uh, this uh, couple and their their kid who, you know, we've kind of bubbled a bit. And they called it as they were pulling up. And we, we were sitting inside and we heard people shouting outside. And we heard people on their balconies and people were shouting. And then we heard honk, uh, within seconds, we heard horns honking. And we knew almost immediately, like, oh, they called it for Biden. I checked my phone and sure enough, yeah, they called it for Biden. And my wife and her friends were going nuts and dancing and they had a boom box and they were, uh, you know, had their Biden-Harris posters. And I uh, did not share in that sentiment. I, I'm very, uh, I'm much less emotional about that kind of stuff. And I quickly launched into uh, colder practical uh, <laughs> uh, psychology. And I was like, well, that's good. That's one step, but there are several steps to go mm-hmm. and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the, now comes the hard part. And I was very, very happy. And and I was happy to see everybody celebrating and everybody in the streets. And here in Brooklyn, I mean, it was packed. We went down to Fort Greene Park and 
it was awesome, you know, and, it, and it, it's what one of the great things about Brooklyn and everybody's out in the street and everybody's happy. I even saw a couple of cops smiling, which is weird. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, I didn't share in that kind of jubilation. Uh, I was glad to see it. I was glad to people glad to see people were happy. Uh, it, it, you know, if nothing else, a brief respite. And I also thought days prior, like, well, he is going he is going to get I, I never thought he was going to get North Carolina, but I thought, OK, he's going to get mm. Pennsylvania. He's uh, going to get Nevada and he's going to get I think a, there's a good chance he'll get Georgia and yeah, your, your home state, Georgia. And, you know, I'm just more a little bit more uh, skeptical and cynical. And, uh, I didn't try to, I didn't try to bum anybody out and go, Hey, you shouldn't be celebrating. I was just, you know, you guys jump around and dance to cool in the gang. That's great. I'm going to reserve <laughs> it for, you know, when the, when it's actually good mm-hmm. again. Do you feel like your skepticism is more about whether this administration can change things or do a good job? Or is it more about this kind of moment that we're in where Trump is refusing to concede, and we don't really know how this is going to play out over the next. Oh, it's uh, it's few a months. little of both. It's a little of both. I, I never. I'm not one of those people who's just dour about Biden Harris. I wouldn't. I, I'm not one. Of, I don't share that. That they're not progressive enough, or that they're. I mean, they're not. They're not progressive enough for my taste. But I'm happy they're in there, and now we can continue to work and continue. There's no reason to not, you know, hold their feet to the fire and do try to keep advancing progressive uh, uh, causes. But um, I'm not one of those people. And and I'm trying to keep them out of my life too. those just completely negative, humorless, angry. It should have been Bernie Sanders. And uh, if it's not, then fuck it. America sucks. And you're all sheep and Obama caged children too. And don't, I don't have that kind of mindset. And I, I choose not to have that kind of mindset. I'm not willfully ignorant. I understand all these things, but I like to find some tiny sliver of optimism to work towards making things better. Yeah. I was just uh, I was just rewatching your most recent special, uh, Oh Come On, uh, a couple days ago, and uh, you have a lot in there about sort of imagining how the how this election might have gone, whether it's from the debates with with Ron Perlman or the all the stuff about how the what the end game of of Trump might be. So now that we're in in this moment, do you have ideas or thoughts about about how this is going to play out now that the Trump is is still refusing to concede? There are a handful of ways that I I it's really it's tough it's tricky and 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 that that bit about um, how will Trump leave office is interesting in in retrospect for sure and I also could now that we're in the middle of it I, I think of all the other things I could have said as well but um, and I used to have a bit that I dropped just because it wasn't that strong but the idea of him he would just disappear and he'd leave a note like a tear stained note with um, uh, what's that emo band that I can't stand. Uh, I can't remember. There's like a notes from a lyric. From, no, no, no. Emo, like true emo. Shoot, I'm forgetting their names. Huge emo band. Like, uh, uh, anyway. I'm, not, I'm um, not a big emo guy, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to get it probably. All right. I'll, I'm, it wasn't a dashboard <laughs> confessional, but I'll yeah. say dashboard confessional. Okay. And, you know, a tear stain with lyrics and, you know, you guys never liked me and, you know, you know, now you're going to see what it's like. And he's just like gone and he's left this note. Um, but then he's actually hiding in the closet to listen to everybody grieve over his loss. You know, <laughs> he's gone. I mean, I think he's just going to reluctantly leave he will uh i i believe uh, my guess is that he'll leave the the saying that it was all you know this is wrong and you guys are uh this is messed up and the democrats are evil and this is an injustice but i'll go i think he will end up couching it in this kind of classic trump i'm the victim but what i'm doing is noble and i will uh i will leave i leave reluctantly but i'm doing it for all of you i'm sorry to see that you know these people are so evil and bad and they're and that this is the way you know america is a tyranny and whatever and um and then he may just try to crown himself as the the moral taking the moral high ground i'm guessing there might there might wait because it's inevitable it's going to happen he obviously doesn't want to be seen marching out of there with you know frog tied uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh kicking and screaming yeah and i think he, i think he'll just twist it so that he's the hero and he's the martyr and and then you know as the lawsuits 
and the criminal cases against him start piling up, then, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that takes, because uh, all this stuff about him, talking about him uh, um, running again in 2024 is garbage. He'll never do that. I don't it's buy garbage. that either. No. And a lot of it is just, I think he's trying to keep, ra- just to keep raising money. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of expenses. He's going to have uh, a lot of, a lot of billable hours to several law firms. Um, <laughs> yeah, coming for in sure. The future. And then it'll be interesting to see if he leaves the country and if he's got no choice but to leave the country and go to the UAE or something. <laughs> I think to me, one of, you know, nothing about what he's done during this time has been surprising at all. I think there is still, and maybe there shouldn't be, but something surprising about the number of Republicans who are just going along with it and, and you know, refusing yeah, to accept uh, was, to Biden. That was so surprising at first, but it's all cumulative and it doesn't, it's not surprising four years later. I mean, to see the complete 180 degree turnarounds from all these guys from, uh, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham and, and Rubio and every single one of them, uh, you're doubling down, tripling down in for a penny in for a pound. I mean, you've, you've, you've tied yourself to this lot. There's nothing left to do. There's no coming out of it. We all know who you are. We're, you know, we, there's no, it's too late. That ship has sailed. Boy, there's a lot of metaphors in there. <laughs> <laughs> One of the very few Republicans who have, you know, congratulated Joe Biden is George W. Bush, which is just another in this kind of examples of the the ways that he has maybe not turned out to be what people thought. And I, I'm curious what you think about that, because you did spend, you know, a good part of your oh, earlier stand up career. He's, uh, he's you know. terrible. He's he <laughs> he benefits from the American this concept of okay, and this is what really. I'm skeptical about Biden um, is this idea of like, okay, let's move on. Let's heal the country. And uh, I mean, that guy should be in jail and his cabinet should be George W. Bush, not Joe, not Joe Biden. George W. Bush (laughs) should be in jail. His cabinet should be in jail. Some of them were. Libby Scooter got pardoned. People got pardoned and they're criminals and they directly paved the way for Trump. So uh, there's nothing he can say to make make what he did and who he is any better. And that's just the media. The media loves that. Yeah, they love a redemption and people. Yeah, an arc, a moral arc. So I want to talk about this uh, new podcast, The Assembly, that you uh, that you're involved in and, and kind of is chronicling your your process. So how did you get involved in that? And how did you decide, how did you decide that that was something that you wanted to subject yourself to someone examining your process? Very reluctantly. Um, I've known Robert over the years. Uh, I did <clears throat> Robert Malazzo who, who put it together. Um, who's just a, a, a a great guy, like what somebody would describe as a mensch, you know, he's just a good, decent guy who really loves that stuff. He loves film and critique and how that branches out into uh, other parts of the arts and stand up, et cetera. And, and he's got a real, a deep appreciation and, a, and an analytical mind for it. And, um, and I met him, he would do these events where he would have a guest, he and the guest would come out and talk up briefly about what are their favorite movies. And then, and this would be at a theater, this would be a big theater. And then they'd screen that movie and then there'd be like a Q&A afterwards. And the guest was somebody involved in, you know, Willem Dafoe or, uh, you know, whoever. And, and I did one of those. It was really fun. And I, I vibed with him a lot. I liked him. And, um, and then he approached me, I guess, about a year and a half ago when I had started to develop. Oh, you know what? I think he actually approached me to see if I was doing any like TV or film projects that I was developing uh, uh, that were my own ideas. And I said, no, um, I'm actually starting to uh, put together another stand-up. I'm going to concentrate on that and put together another hour and a half and go and tour with it. And he said, oh, what about that? Can I do that? And I was really reluctant. And I I think I probably even said no, just because it doesn't lend itself to... uh, I have no problem with somebody seeing my, you know, I'm developing a movie story and you can see my board and the cards and what's going to, that to me is interesting. You're not going to get too many spoiler alerts, but stand-up is a completely different thing. I mean, when you do stand-up and it's out there, that material is burned. Unlike any other art form, you can't repeat it. It's the the only art form I know where you just can't, it's done. And 
And believe me, I myself and uh, uh, you know several other comedians over the years have, have just you know in in passing conversations, you lament the idea of uh, God. I wish I could go out and do a you know fucking Eagles Greatest Hits tour and make you know pocket four hundred million bucks and just I know. trot that stuff out and do it. And uh, I think Jerry and, Seinfeld tried that with his uh, material. So oh, maybe maybe some people can do it. <laughs> I well, that's just terrible, but. Uh, I did try once. I had this idea and I thought it was going to be great. I did it once and it failed miserably about uh, doing an encore uh, after, you know, a long set and going and doing a cover, cover joke. And I uh, <laughs> doing uh, Pat Oswalt's the KFC thing. And, uh, and I just started to put it together. I was like, I can't do this. It's yeah. not going to work. <laughs> uh, it's just not, didn't feel it's a right. Funny idea. You know? Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was the kind of thing where I was like, this could be fun. And then I was like, no, this isn't going to work. I told him repeatedly, like there's so much of this, you're not going to be able to use. You can't use any of the material until after the yeah, special. Yeah, because you don't want to burn out. it on the on the podcast, right? And I told them we're talking years and years and years from now. If I, it'll take me. Let's say it takes me nine months to from starting from complete scratch, where I got nothing but a couple, you know, uh, sentences written down on pieces of paper, up to you know creating the set, going out, touring, recording a special recording you know the audio because i always do the the live show is halfway through the tour and then the audio uh because it'll have changed and i like the idea that the the audio is different than the visual stuff you know by about whatever 30 percent or so um and i recorded the audio at the very end of the tour and then it takes a while for that stuff to even come out i i you know i'm like you're talking years and years and years and years and years before you can use it and uh and he was like that's okay we'll figure it out and, and i was like <laughs> all right is it and then so this was all I mean you started this all you know pre covid when you were still able to go out and perform so did that it, did yeah. that did that kind of disrupt the process when you were no longer able to to go out and and perform oh, in, in well, terms of your your building yeah. towards the towards an hour I mean what's your Yeah no I mean where it's, are uh, you with that I'm right where I left off in fact I'm probably you know several steps behind from there now some of the material will not feel relevant anymore, I guess. And some of the material, I mean, uh, you're talking about stuff that I was working on. And uh, I think the last set I did would have been, it was in Atlanta. I was there to shoot something and then our production got shut down. But I would say, give or take a few days, it was like March 1st was the last time I did stand up with this set where I was in the process uh, of, of working the material out. And I was at a good place. I had been doing it for a while and I was at a good place and felt ready to move into phase two of this thing. And for me, I can't, I mean, everybody's different. Everybody has their own approach and what works for them, what doesn't, but I can't Right. I can't sit in my office and get a computer and write jokes. It just doesn't work. I've tried it numerous times. It, my brain, unfortunately, doesn't work like that. And 99.9% of my stuff is worked out on stage. And and that's uh, how I developed the last two sets. was looking forward to that. And then, obviously, once they shut indoor facilities down, there's no... I can't work on it. I tried, I did two outdoor shows here in Brooklyn that just didn't, it didn't work. Didn't feel right. It, it was too, it was, it was, there was too much of a separation, um, literally physically a separation where I had this one bit, I had not thought about this. I had not thought it through, but one of the bits that I really, it's a fairly new one that I'm really, really enjoy doing which is, uh, uh, you know, there's a definite kind of shock value to it. Uh, and it's a thing that weaves and kind of goes through a bunch of different moral ideas. And what is, why not? Why can't I do this thing? I'm not going to tell you what the actual thing is, but why can't I do it? What if this was the, it's a, it's a real fun little ride to, you know, steer the audience through. And um, it is very, 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 very dependent on audience reaction and interaction because I'm it's not a these aren't rhetorical questions I'm asking anymore and I'm actually talking to people and I had I had probably done that bit I'd stumbled upon the idea you know maybe seven shows prior to that I was really enjoying that part of it and 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 it's really fun to do and then I tried to do it again 
outdoors where everybody's separated and they're physically far away. Yeah. Like the people at the back are at the <laughs> and back. from each and, other and for, yeah. Yeah. And I, and it was one of those things where I was trying to get on a roll and go, excuse me. Uh, well, why not? And somebody would say something and I, well, what if this was the case? And then people are piping up and it was, there was, um, I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what did, what did she say? What did, what was that? And then I get a word wrong. Wait, and then I just had to yeah. abandon the crowd bit, work. Really just, goes out the window in this in these situations. Yeah. So I tried two outdoor shows, you know, COVID friendly space shows, and it just didn't work. And so I was like, "All right, it's just for me again. For me, I, I just have to wait to get back into those, you know, basement of a Brooklyn mm-hmm. bar, you know." sweaty we're all crammed together kind of things to get the work done do you do you miss that do you miss uh stand up oh, i mean I, i'm yeah, sure this much. is one of the longest stretches you've gone really without doing it on a, in a regular basis yeah, I, right? miss, I miss it a lot and i um i i like almost in a, a childlike way i miss it because i'm not allowed to do it anymore you know it's that <laughs> thing like it's taken away well now i really miss it and uh uh and i put those two shows together because i missed it so much and it had been so long since i I had gotten to do a show. Um, but as I said, it just didn't, didn't work. And looking forward to a day in the future when, you know, perhaps there is a vaccine and we can do this again. And I'll, you know, but I'm, I'm sure the set will change quite dramatically. Uh, <laughs> a lot of bits that I thought were kind of fun, like, well, this just seems frivolous now. <laughs> is there you an know? example of something like that that you would, that you'd be willing to share that, that you think won't um, make sense I anymore? I think about it. I don't even, I mean, I'd have to go look at notes for my, for my set. I mean, Oh, I can think of one thing that I, I, it was about a guy who was an impression of a a person debating who thought he had only had 30 seconds to answer a question, but it (laughs) turns out he had five minutes and he wasn't prepared to (laughs) fill. And I think that would just feel a little, because I remember what it was. um, And it would just feel a little, it would feel like I was not addressing obvious things to address Mm -hmm. like that bit would have been good it might be good in two years yeah i was gonna say you could hold on to that for a while and it'll come back around coming up david looks back on the origins of mr show and explains how he knows arrested development is finally over for good But that's okay because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
I want to go back a little bit to to the earlier part of your career. Um, I didn't realize this when I, but when I was researching that you started doing stand up so early. You you started when you were like seventeen years old. Is that right? Yeah, the week before my my eighteenth birthday was the first time I went up uh, at the Punchline in Sandy Springs, Georgia. <laughs> and what was it about you know that time in your life that you decided at that young age, which is you know young younger than than most people probably, that you that this was something that you wanted to do? Um, I might have been you know I, I was definitely one of the youngest, but there were other. I mean, I had there were some other people who weren't you know you know they were definitely in their uh, you know nineteen twenty wasn't I didn't I didn't feel. I didn't feel like I'm really, really young. I didn't have that feeling, but I knew I wanted to do comedy and uh, something in the comedy world. And I would do kind of, you know, little bits with my my friends. And, and then I didn't have like an epiphany, like I have to, this is what I was meant to do, but I knew I was going to try it. And I knew I was I was also a bit, um, a, a kind of a bit fearless in that sense of, I think where other people really have this reluctance, uh, gosh, I don't know about going on stage and I'd like to do it, but the audience, you know, scares me. I didn't really have that. Uh, I would come to have it. Uh, and, and perhaps there's some, a, a blessing to being kind of naive to what it was actually like to go on stage and bomb miserably over and over again. But, you know, I was psyched to do it. I don't know. I wish I had a succinct answer for it, but I, I just, it's something I knew I wanted to try. And I definitely had a feeling, and this is for better or worse, both good and bad. Uh, it's, it's served me well and it served me ill, but I had a I definitely felt a superiority, even when I, even though I was 17, I'd go and watch stand-ups and I'd watch open mic nights. And um, before I ever did it, you know, I, did, I went down to a bunch of them, had some like-minded friends, you know, we, who were thinking about it or into the idea and, and we'd get in and uh, I had a fake ID, which back when you could really easily fake IDs. Um, and, uh, I watched these people go up on stage. Some were, were competent and some were just terrible and, and just the worst humor. And I can remember some of them. I remember some of the bits and everything and just thinking I can do better than that. (laughs) And I guess you have to have that. I guess it's okay. I don't, I don't mean to. Otherwise you would never get up if you thought I, well, I can't do as good as that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I and I, I don't I don't mean it to come off as cockiness. It wasn't cocky. It was just more of a it was uh, it settled me. It, it made me think, OK, I can do this because this is that's terrible. And I know I can be at least more thoughtful than that, um, or more funnier than that or more original. Um, and and it was, uh, you know, if anything, it just it kind of eased my nerves. I was like, oh, OK, I can at least do that. Oh, if you like that then, okay, I'm okay. I can do this. <laughs> and then how did it go when you got up for the first time or the first couple times? I've told the story before. It is, it is the craziest thing. And I, I urge you when I tell you this to, I'm underselling it, but <laughs> it was the, if it was scripted in a movie, you could not, it would be, you'd walk out going, I want my money back. This is bullshit. <laughs> it was the great, it was the greatest triumph Literally the very first time, very first open mic, the uh, host was from New York, uh, 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 played Catch a Rising Star a bunch. And everybody, you know, we, all the other comics were like, hey, it's somebody from New York City. He plays Catch. All right. He's a headliner. (laughs) Oh boy, this is, you know, undo extra good. And um, I went up and I killed. I mean, I crushed. It was ridiculous. (laughs) This is the first time I'm doing these bits that were not that great at all. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I said, Oh, the red lights on, I got to go. And people in the audience were like, no, no, (laughs) you couldn't script it any more corny than this. And I've never seen it happen since as if everybody was punking me. And, and I was like, Oh, well, uh, uh, whatever. And I finished up my set and that's probably all I had anyway. And I get off stage and the host is saying like, Oh man, that kid's great. He's going to go somewhere. Just, oh, it was just the corniest thing that felt scripted. It made me feel like, Oh, I'm a genius and I'm a natural. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's do a couple more of these and then I'll get on the uh, tonight show. And then... <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it propelled you from there. Yeah. And I would say, I don't know, I'm pulling this number out of my ass, but I would say the next 11 times I went up, <laughs> I just ate it. Yeah. Same material. And I didn't understand. And I even said like in a pathetic way, like, 
this really this worked last week. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. This yeah. all, I mean, literally doing the same exact thing. It's all that all I had, and and you know had invited people down and like a girl that I liked, and uh, and it was just brutal. Yeah, and that's how it should have gone in the first place. It, yeah. That was, it's thing. funny. I've, I've, I mean, I don't think maybe not to that degree, but I've heard that before from from comics who say, you know, whether I don't, maybe it's some weird like beginner's luck uh, or like you know you don't know what to expect, so you. But th- th- that the first time goes better than the next, you know, eleven, twelve times. Oh yeah, completely. Um, did you besides that first moment? Did you have a uh, did you have a kind of first big break or some opportunity that you were given that kind of changed things for you? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple I can point to. Um, uh, I would say two in particular. One, uh, I stayed in Atlanta for a year after I uh, graduated high school. I went to New York for three months and then came back to Atlanta and knowing I was going to go to Boston the next year. And I just worked at like Pizza Hut and Domino's and just hanging out and getting high and drinking with my friends and going to see bands and stuff like that. And, uh, and and doing stand-up where I could. And then when I got to Boston, I had formed this group, sketch group. And I was, I've made a, a name for myself fairly quickly there. And, and uh, my kind of comedy uh, and what I was turning into was, uh, uh, and my peers, in part of that scene, which is insane when you look back at the Boston scene, it's just an embarrassment of how amazing, how many amazing people there were, but um, and people that changed comedy, you know, um, and we were all hanging out and, and I got a manager from uh, uh, somebody, a friend of mine who was in the group, who was good friends with Stephen Wright, brought Stephen Wright to see the show. He brought his manager, who became my manager, who's still my manager, going back, uh, Jesus, uh, wow, what is that, like 35 years now or something? I don't know. And I got, he was able to get me into the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And I had a set Another one of those crazy dream sets where it was like late night. I was like the, um, it was you know the late show, the danger zone or something like that. It was really late, and <clears throat> it was one of those things where I just didn't give a shit, you know. And I was probably had a few beers, and it was late, and I just killed. And it was a huge crowd, and it was all industry people. Um, I mean, I just killed, I destroyed, and the next day I. I was the buzz and Charles Joffe, the uh, famous manager, was interviewed saying, you know, you got to watch this kid, David Cross. He's going to be the next da da da. And that, that's, that set just launched me and, and opened so many doors. And then uh, that coincided with going out to L.A., and working on the Ben Stiller show, and um, and Janine Garofalo was responsible for getting Ben and Judd to look at my stuff. I had met Ben prior to that, and we hit it off. Um, but they hired me as a writer, and then through that, I met Bob Odenkirk, and then Mr. Show. So I'd say the two things were, you know, getting a manager, a legit manager who got me into, uh, just for laughs and having that ridiculous, you know, huge show that just changed everything overnight that changed everything. And then, and then doing Mr. Show. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was further door opening. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely want to talk about Mr. Show, which first of all, I couldn't believe that it's the 25th anniversary was this month, yeah. which is insane. Uh, yep. Um, and to me, I mean, I was just such a hugely uh, influential show on just my own comedy fandom and sensibility and everything. So I really, you know, appreciate that. I wanted to ask, you know, from that starting out on that show, what what sort of stands out in your memory from from starting it out in terms of what you wanted it to be or how you wanted it to be different from other sketch shows that were on the air, whether it's Saturday Night Live or, or anything else that that was that was out there at the time? Well, you know, it stemmed from a live show that Bob and I did that, and that live show developed. Um, initially, we were just doing kind of sketches together in other shows that we were all our, our massive group were, were part of, and so the live show developed in a way that preceded how the film show developed. And um, I, I, you know, we wanted, we were both huge Monty Python fans and influenced directly by Monty Python. And, um, and Bob had come from SNL and he did not care for their, the parameters that were kind of forced upon the writer performers there. And I had my own kind of, again, has served me well and has served me ill, but this kind of like, fuck all that stuff, you know, more of a, a looser, 
who gives a shit, let's do it our way kind of attitude. And so together, we definitely, you know, saw it quite clearly together, what the show should be, what it could be. We both did had done stuff prior, him prior to SNL and me prior to, uh, you know, going out to LA with my sketch show in Boston that kind of took that idea that Letterman used to do where you walk off stage and now you're in a videotape, pre-taped piece that is a direct thing. I'm going to walk, you know, you cut to the thing. And so I used to do that in my stuff. And we incorporated that into our live shows where, and then we started finding the value in having the sketches transition. And, and when you do that, uh, you don't necessarily intend to do this. It's just a, a happy accident, but your shows start to take on a personality. So you can look at other sketch shows, really good sketch shows too, like uh, Python or, or Kids in the Hall or SCTV, all shows that I worship, you know, it, but you can't say that each episode has its own distinct personality. I mean, you can when you look for it, but the kind of the way that we started one way and then we'd thread and everything transition and segue, and then you'd kind of come back around, gave the show its own distinct personality. And it would, as you were, as we were, you know, sitting in the writer's room going like this sketch, it, lends itself to following this thing and this thing. And then you'd see kind of a, not necessarily a theme, but kind of this idea sort of shaping. And, and we were very, very um, careful and mindful and uh, conscious of putting those shows together. Because initially your board is just like, here's 30 live scenes. Here's 20 film scenes. Here's 14 tiny little scenes that could be transitions. And then you just start putting them together. And here's an idea for the opening. Yeah, here's it's like a idea. puzzle. Yeah. And, um, and I think we could see that the show, how the show, from the very first one we did, which is a little cruder, um, you know, up to season three and four, like how they were really starting to, they, they developed that way where each show has a kind of a personality and, and, you know, if you scratch it, uh, the surface a little bit, you can see a theme or a philosophy that presents itself, you know. Was there an early sketch that really you felt like defined the style that you were going for or felt like this is really like the quintessential thing that we're, we're trying to achieve? Um, I guess the best example of that would be Change for a Dollar, which I think was in the very first episode or certainly one of the first few where, uh, you know, a, a guy comes in, it's a live thing. There's a weird vibe, so it's kind of funny, but it's not its own. It's not a standalone sketch. And then the guy goes back. Well, I don't want to explain it for everybody, but, you know, then it goes into these uh, series of filmed pieces, and then it comes back to the live thing. And that's a that's a, a crude, an example of a, a crude way we did that that turned into, you know, kind of a more elegant presentation of that idea. You. Mr. Spivey, please. Hey, Danny, what's up? I'm in a hurry. Uh, I got a fella here who wants change for a dollar. Who? Change for a dollar? Um. Wow. Uh. Oh no! 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 Change. All right. Let me take a little bit of All right, all right, all right, all right. I'll tell you what, Danny, I'm going to have to call the big guy. All right. So I think, you know, you had the kind of unique experience of, of bringing it back five years ago when I actually met you and, and Bob there for the first time at that premiere um, for the for the new show, the Netflix show, um, and talked about it there. And one of the things we were talking about for that interview that, that ran in the Daily Beast was that Know Your Rights sketch, which has kind of come back into focus now. Um, and it's funny, you know, when we were talking about it then, you know, I thought it was very funny and we were just kind of talking about the ideas behind it. Um, and now I'm curious if you were surprised when Netflix decided to actually pull it from the service because it was something that no one really objected to at the time when it came out. No, and I I was very surprised and disappointed. Uh, uh, I know everybody <clears throat> involved with it was. And, you know, it's a... 
Netflix isn't in the, we want to be friends with Bob and David business. They're in the <laughs> international business of not upsetting people and continuing to get subscribers. So it's an easy, albeit thoughtless decision to make. Well, we'll just lose that because, you know, they're not, they're not interested in having a discussion about it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't behoove them to um, really, you know, pour over this and let's, let's all talk about this. Cause this is clearly, this isn't offensive. We, you guys get the understanding, you know, they're not interested in that. And, uh, um, they got a business to run. And so we were just the unfortunate recipients of like that purge of anything that remotely, even in a tertiary way, sort of approached that idea. Um, uh, so it's all gone. It's just gone. They took a whole, they scrubbed the whole episode. <laughs> they didn't even just, oh, take, yeah. the they didn't even just take that sketch out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, the thing that they were objecting to is that your character briefly is wearing dark makeup on his face in front of this cop to kind of prove a point. To prove a point, it's to be offensive, to get arrested, does it to a black cop who doesn't care. The only one who does care is the white. <laughs> I mean, there are like nine layers to it. Not nine, but there's three or four layers to the humor in it. And it's not somebody who's being offensive or doing it to be offensive, nor is the sketch itself trying to be offensive. And it makes a, a positive, it actually makes a positive statement about the black cop. You know, it's the white cop. I mean, it's just, as I said, it's thoughtless. It's, um, I don't think anybody really, they just said, it's got this thing. I'm not interested in discussing what it means. Get rid of it. What the fuck? Hello, brother. How can I be of service to you today? Cherry, is this the guy that's been dicking you around? Yeah. Good afternoon, sir. We got a job to do here. Okay, officer, I'm fully cooperating. Yeah, cooperating with us. Oh, right, step God. out of the car, sir. Please. Oh, we can just step oh, out. Yeah, let's get this undone. Oh, wait, yeah, that feel wait, good? Come on. Wait, get no, okay, finally, here we go. Oh, God, it stinks. Okay, officer, I am taping this interaction, okay? okay. Oh, Jesus. Oh, it's okay to swear. You have a legal right to swear. Oh, fuck. Is the taping going all right? <laughs> I mean, this is this the kind of thing that you've had to deal with periodically over your career because of the way that your comedy, you know, uses satire and irony and, and the things that people don't understand or... Not really. I've had issues with standards and practices. One thing, like... I mean, there was stuff like um, Comedy Central show I did where they were very, they didn't want us to uh, some, say something negative about Scientology. And that's just, you know, whatever. Um, and there have been a handful of things here and there, but not really, certainly not on Mr. Show. We didn't have much of that on Mr. Show. And it's interesting. Maybe the difference, you know, the difference between HBO and, and Netflix, maybe too, there is HBO. Yeah, is... but th to be fair, you know, who knows what HBO did in 2015. Uh, you know, that Netflix wouldn't have done in, in 1995. So, mm -hmm. you know. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I also want to just uh, briefly touch on Arrested Development because that's another one of my just favorite things that you've done. Um, and I know you, you've said that when you, you kind of instantly knew when you signed on to that, that it was going to be something special, that it was going to be great. Um, when we what were was shooting it? the pilot, yeah. Yeah. Sure. What was it about that experience that you that made you think, oh, this is going to be something really, really great? Well, initially, I loved the script. And I was, uh, I had said no to it because I just moved to New York. And I was like, there's no way I'm going back to LA. Yeah. You know, like that. So, but the script was very, very funny. And then, you know, it's one thing to be funny and you're, you're, I don't know any of these people and I'm imagining the, whatever I'm conjuring up, not, not even actively doing it. It's just sort of popping in my head. This is Job and that's Buster and there's Lucille and, you know, and then getting together and working with, uh, literally everybody, the cast, the Russo brothers and Mitch Hurwitz. I mean, just from starting to, to shoot and play with all those people, I knew very quickly, as did everybody. I think everybody understood, like, this is something special. And I remember I called my my then girlfriend and said, like, I'm going to have to do the show. I, I'm sorry. You know, and she, we had a fairly new relationship and she certainly didn't uh, sign on for a long-term relationship. And I remember exactly where I was like going, like, I, I, I've got to do the show. It's something special. I'm telling you. Um, how much of Tobias Bluth 
came from you versus what was on the page? Well, first of all, it's Tobias Funke. Oh, <laughs> Tobias Funke. He's not officially a blue. That's that's embarrassing for me, but yes, you're right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a good uh, collaboration. When I got the script, I uh, I was originally sent the to look at Buster and Job, and I had no line on Job. I did not get Job at all. I didn't know what they were looking for. And that now I see Will Arnett, and you're like, oh, of course, of course, that's it. It's hard to imagine anybody else. And Buster, it was like, yeah, that's fun, but I so quickly and deeply got Tobias, and who was like a side character. He was never meant to be a regular cast. And I knew immediately what I wanted, and I called them and I said, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'm interested. I'll, I would do this, but I don't. Here's the character I want to play, and here's why. And I got on the phone with Mitch and. The Russo brothers, who I'd never met before, and I just pitched him on, this is who I think he is. I had a very, very specific ideas. I, I pitched how he should dress and pitched the mustache. And um, uh, that was its own kind of crazy thing where they didn't want me to have the mustache and the fox, and <laughs> particularly Gail Berman didn't because she had a rule, a comedy rule. <laughs> yeah, no mustache rule. Yeah, it's for real. So I had to fight for that. But <laughs> so as we developed him and I you know, said, I think he should look like this and wear this and do that. And, um, you know, you know, very much into like Birkenstocks with sandals, uh, I mean, with socks and that kind of thing. And, um, and then those guys had somebody to write for. So it was, people always assume that we improvised quite a bit, but after the first season, we really didn't improvise that much because the scripts were so dense and they were editing it way down that this would never even make it in. And you had so much to shoot anyway. You just didn't have the luxury of spending an extra 15 minutes, you know, working stuff out or finding those things. So you just went in. It was shot very quickly. Um, and, uh, and that's just a testament to how good the writing was, that it feels like that. First of all, I love it. Quick question, though. Am I panicked about the fire? Or am I being brave for everyone else? The fire. It, it's, it's a fire sale. Oh. <laughs> okay, I didn't... Um, well, let's give it a shot. Oh, my God! We're having a fire sale! Oh, the burning! It burns me! scene um would you like to try that a little simpler maybe no because the show has come back so many times now or, or been you know going over such a long period of time i think there's this perpetual like is it coming back is it over question it's that you guys all get it's over it's now over. you can definitively say it's, it's over. over it's over how do you how do you know that or what what, I, yeah, what I do you know. i know <laughs> I don't want to make you rehash any of the, you know, drama that happened a couple of years ago with the, you know, in the New York Times and everything, but is that part of why it's over, do you think, that there's that, um, you know, cloud around no, it? No, I don't think it's that, actually. I think it's all the things that led up to those kind of things becoming an issue on set. It it was a, a difficult... It was a difficult process for everybody, exceptionally difficult if you're older. And it was, you know, not good. It wasn't a good way to... Uh, it wasn't good for the actors, that's for sure. Did it feel really different from when you were doing it early on? Because it seemed like you yes. were having fun early on. So what, cha what changed? I mean, I'm not going to go into it too much, but we just didn't have scripts and we didn't know what, what we were supposed to do. And enough, things weren't making sense to us. And we were doing reshoots on things that because somebody thought of a joke three weeks later. So we had to reshoot something for a story thing that we had no concept of what was happening. There were never, we didn't have full scripts. I mean, it was uh, it was a terrible way for actors to try to do what they do. And the, there were a lot of frustrations early on. The shoot kept extending. You know, you're asking a lot of people, and especially older people, who, do, who just don't have the, the physical stamina that some younger cast and crew do. And it led to some tensions. And it was, it's just not a, it was a, a very bad way to work. Yeah, no, I mean, it's such a, it's such a shame too, because I think those original 
seasons especially are just so beloved and held up as this you know nearly perfect and they, thing. And they should be they should be there it was that's an it's an amazing show and um and i thought what mitch uh attempted to do in season four was really admirable and interesting and and cool and i it's definitely ambitious very ambitious and i uh i remember it took when i watched it it took a, like six episodes before i fi- kind of figured out oh i see how i'm supposed to watch this now and once i figured that out I really enjoyed it. It was a really cool, trippy puzzle thing and, you know, remains an interesting experiment, you know? Yeah, but maybe ultimately not as successful as the as the early ones. Right. Um, well, I, I enjoyed them as well, but I think, yeah, there is something about those first early seasons that were just uh, perfect. And I was I was watching them, uh, came out when I was in college, actually. So I was watching them in my dorm with, with roommates and just have very fond memories of, of that show as well. As we wrap up, is there, you know, looking forward without the ability to go into clubs and do stand-up right now, is there something that you are really sort of itching to do professionally that you want to, that you want to accomplish um, in this time as difficult as everything is? I mean, I, I've been working on a couple ideas that I'm not, you know, haven't really a hundred percent landed in my head yet. And I'm trying to figure those out. Starting in January, I have to move to Toronto for six months. So my wife's got work up there and because of COVID, there's no going back and forth because I'd have to quarantine every single time. So we're just moving the family up there for six months. So I will be a temporary Canadian and I'm I'm going to and maybe not temporary. Maybe yeah, not well, temporary. Yeah, if Trump overturns the election, then you'll be you'll be in good shape up there. He won't, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I like Canada. I've spent a lot of time in Canada. I like it quite a bit. And uh, it's certainly a better place, I think, to raise a child, for sure. And, you know, my wife and I have discussed that. And we'll be in Toronto, which is another place I've spent plenty of time in. And I, I really enjoy it. But, you know, we'll see, I'll see if that kind of that new location, the, that new energy jogs something and I get another creative run that's not stand-up but who knows maybe i'll be able to do stand-up there they're maybe they those guys behave they know what they're doing <laughs> yeah definitely better than us so we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians who is another comedian who has made you laugh really really hard in your life could be someone you've seen on stage or someone that you've worked with who makes you laugh you know in the green room or or on set um who's the person that that comes to mind that just really makes you laugh harder than than anyone else I would say Zach Galifianakis in every form, whether he's just you're hanging out with him backstage or uh, you're watching his set or just in any setting. Zach make me, makes me laugh really hard. And H. John Benjamin. And as far as watching st- stand-up, just pure stand-up, I'd say Daniel Kitson is probably one of the best. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And, um, you know, I hope that you get to, to perform stand-up uh, sometime soon, oh, whether it's here or in Canada. I'd love to, yeah. Looking forward to that that hour or whatever it becomes when it when you get to do it. All right, man. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, yeah, stay safe and, and good luck with everything. Love you. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again to David Cross for being my guest on today's show. You can subscribe to the Assembly podcast now wherever you get your podcasts to hear a lot more about his stand-up process and we'll be looking forward to his next special whenever he's finally able to tape it in front of a live audience. If you're enjoying this podcast, how about giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.